All right, well, um, we, we are in the middle of a series, a, a short little series called Faithful Presence, and we got the phrase faithful presence from a book that uh, I recently read called To Change the World, and uh, the premise of the book is basically this. He says, listen, we, li- we live in the late modern world that is increasingly secular, that is increasingly, increasingly uh, polarized, hostile, and uh, in- increasingly uh, difficult to live in. And the question is, how do, how do Christians engage in a culture like that, like this? Um, how do Christians engage in a way that makes a difference? Um, how do we engage in a way that might uh, transform or be a transformative presence in the culture. And he says the way that you do that is by being a faithful presence. Now, he says what you don't want to do is go out with all guns blazing. He said sometimes Christians are, are tempted to go out and fight the culture wars and take back the culture for Jesus, you know, and, and get very defensive. He says that's, that's really not the way to do it. You may want to do that. That's not the way of Jesus. Uh, rather, he says, the way to change the world is by, by being a quiet, subtle, consistent, faithful presence. And so uh, we're looking at that, wondering how can we do that as a community here at Fellowship? How could we be a faithful presence in Batesville and beyond? And so uh, last week we talked about hospitality. Um, one of the ways that we could do this is by being a hospitable community, by being a welcoming community, a community that welcomes the outsiders. And uh, today we're going to look at another way that we could be a faithful presence. And uh, the, way to, the way I want to sum that up is that we be a faithful presence by being neighbors in our community, by, by, by being neighbors here in Batesville. Now, when, when I say be, be a neighbor, who, who's the first person that you think of? Anybody want to throw it out there? Jesus? Well, that's the right answer. Jesus, we're in a church. But yeah, Mr. Rogers, right? He's made famous for the phrase, won't you be my neighbor? Now, there, there's a documentary that, that has just come out recently called Won't You Be My Neighbor? There he is, there's the man, Fred Rogers. And it's, imp- it's supposed to be an incredible documentary. And it's basically the story of this man, uh, Mr. Rogers, who was basically a creative genius who inspired generations of children with compassion and limitless imagination, and uh, he had this phrase, won't you be my neighbor? Now, um, I grew up on this guy. You know, I'm a child of the 70s and the 80s. I grew up on this guy, with this guy. And uh, I remember that there was one episode where he had a fireman come on the show, and I, I, from that moment on, I wore a fire, fire hat for like two years straight. Like, I slept in the thing. That's what I wanted to be for like two years when I was a kid. But Mr. Rogers... His phrase, won't you be my neighbor? And in the documentary, he sums up the phrase like this. He says, it's an invitation to help somebody know that they are loved and capable of loving. Love, he says, is at the root of everything, the love or the lack of it. He says, this is what it boils down to, being a neighbor. Now, now where did he get that phrase, be a neighbor? Where did, uh, where did Mr. Rogers get that powerful phrase? Well, uh, in addition to being a creative genius and uh, you know, a musician and an artist, a producer, a writer, um, Fred Rogers was also a Presbyterian minister. And so, of course, he's taking a card out of the deck of Jesus. He's taking a line from Jesus' playbook. Because Jesus was always talking about being a neighbor to people. And in fact, I, I might say that this is the most radical, countercultural uh, uh, piece of Jesus' teaching. 
Jesus walked around saying, just be a neighbor. Just be a neighbor. Love your neighbor is what he said. And, and this is one of the most powerful ways to be a faithful presence in our community. If we will just love our neighbors the way Jesus taught, I think that, that we will be people that have an influence on our culture in Batesville, which we all want to do. Now, in order to get at what that means, I mean, what is it, if this is so powerful, if this is so awesome, if this is so radical, how can we be neighbors? What does it look like to be a neighbor? What does it mean to be a neighbor? Well, um, in order to get at that, we're going to look at a famous story of Jesus. Uh, it's the story of the Good Samaritan. And uh, almost every, it doesn't matter where you go in the world, you could almost say Good Samaritan, and people know the story that you're talking about. A famous, famous story but it gets at this idea of what it means to be a neighbor and how countercultural and radical it is. And so uh, let's just go ahead and get into it. So this is uh, uh, Luke 10, and we'll start here in verse uh, 25. It says, Behold, a lawyer stood up and put him to the test. All right, so the story opens, and, and a man comes to Jesus, and it says he's a lawyer. Now, when you, when you think lawyer, don't think of a civil lawyer. Don't think of partner down at Goldman and Sachs. Uh, think about a guy who was a Bible scholar. So a lawyer in that day was somebody who was an expert in the religious Torah. Um, this guy was a religious expert, a religious professional who knew the Bible backwards and forwards. And so he comes to Jesus, and it says he came to test Jesus. So uh, Jesus uh, was always giving these teachings and afterwards there'd be a Q&A little session afterwards, uh, after the teaching, and people would stand up and, and it was very, very common for the religious folks of the day to want to trap and test Jesus. And that's exactly what this guy is trying to do. And so he stood up and he asked the question, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? What a good question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? A great question Probably the most important question that you could ever ask, what can I do to inherit eternal life, the kingdom? But it's not an honest question. Again, he's trying to, to test Jesus. And notice what Jesus does. He, he says, well, what is written in the law? How do you read it? Right, so he says, uh, you're the religious expert. Uh, why don't you tell me and then we'll both know. Right, what's written in the law? So, so notice here, Jesus asks, answers this man's question with a question which is a really good strategy when somebody's trying to test you. Somebody asked a famous philosopher, Elie Wiesel, a Jewish philosopher. Um, they asked him, um, why do you Jews always answer, or answer a question with a question? To which he responded, why not? <laughs> right? And so that's what Jesus does. He, he, he answers this man's question with a question. What is in the law? How do you read it? You tell me. You're the expert. And so this is what the man says. He answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And so he answers the question, and this is, this is the best answer he could have given. This is the most appropriate answer that, that this man could have, get, could have given because um, what he does is he recites a, a verse in the Old Testament that every Jewish boy or girl would have memorized. Um, every, you know, the lawyer probably memorized this growing up. The, the, everybody in the crowd memorized this verse growing up. Jesus probably memorized this, this verse growing up. It was, it was a very, very crucial and important and central uh, uh, passage in the Old Testament for Jewish people. And it was the answer to the question, what does God basically require? What does God want from human beings? And what does it say? It says, this is what God wants. You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. 
This is basically it. Put God at the center of your life. Love God with all that you are, body, heart, mind, soul. But notice he adds to it. He says, love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. But then he says, and love your neighbor as yourself. Now, uh, this would have showed that this man was paying attention to Jesus. Because earlier in the, in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus puts together love of God and, and love of neighbor. Nobody had ever done that before, right? And so uh, in the Old Testament, they were separate. And what Jesus says is this is the greatest commandment. This is the one thing that God wants you to do. Love him and love your neighbor as yourself. Vertical and horizontal. He says you cannot love God, you can't see, if you do not love your neighbor who you can see, right? The only way to really truly love God is to love the people around you, right? So he's, 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 Jesus put this out there. He says, listen, you know, loving other people is crucial to what God wants from you. This man was paying attention. He puts them together too. He says, I know the answer. Love God, love others. And notice he keeps on going. And Jesus says, great, great answer, perfect answer. I love it. But then, and Jesus turns to go, he's gonna leave, and the man says, wait, 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 I got one more question. Remember, he's trying to test Jesus. You know, love God, love your neighbor. I just have one question, Jesus. Who is my neighbor? You see, Jesus was known for fraternizing with people on the outside, sinners, uh, people that didn't obey the Mosaic law. He kind of loved just about everybody. And so uh, this man wanted to trap Jesus. Who am I supposed to love? Who is it within my sphere of responsibility to love? And, and he's alluding to an Old Testament passage where love your neighbor comes from. This is Leviticus 19. It's gonna come up on the screen. Uh, in that old passage where it says love your neighbor, it goes like this. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the son of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, um, this verse defines who your neighbor is, right? It puts a circle about, around who you're, you're, uh, who's your neighbor. And, and who is it? It says, you shall not bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, my people, right? We all, we all maybe have said that before. Those are my people, right? I'm gonna go, to, I'll go to that party because those are my people. The, those people, those are not my people over there. Uh-uh, those are not my people, but I've got my people. You didn't know that that came from Le- Le- Leviticus 19, did you? Right, my people. And then he says, you shall love your neighbor, meaning who? You shall love your people as yourself. So what is the sphere of responsibility? Well, for a Jew, it would have been a fellow Jew. That's, that's your people. Somebody of your, your same ethnicity, people that, that you were like and people that liked you. Right, Th- those are the people that you're supposed to love. And by Jesus' time, uh, it, it had become very, very uh, common for people to say this, love your neighbor, love your Jewish neighbor, and what? Hate your enemy. Right, there is a sphere of people that you're supposed to love, those are your people, and then there are people that are not your people, Romans, tax collectors, enemies, you're allowed to hate them. Right, hate those people, love your people, my people. And so this is what this man, this man is coming to Jesus and saying, Am I supposed to love my people? Who, who, who is my neighbor? Who am I required to love? To which Jesus responds uh, with, with a story. And so Jesus goes on here. He doesn't answer the question directly. Who is my neighbor? Uh, Jesus doesn't answer directly. He says, well, let me tell you a story that'll explain what I mean. 
And so he goes on and, and he begins the story of the, of the, parab- of the, of the Good Samaritan. Uh, Jesus says, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down the road and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. And he went to him, and he bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Uh, Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to the inn and took care of him. And the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him. Whatever you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these, Jesus asked, do you think proved to be a neighbor (coughs) to the man who fell among the robbers? And the man responded, the one who showed mercy. And Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. So here's the story. It opens up with a man who's on the road to Jericho. Now the road to Jericho uh, in that day was a real road. It was a real place. It was a very dangerous road. It was steep. It was jagged. Um, There were uh, caves and crags and cliffs everywhere around it. Um, It went from Jerusalem, which was 3,000 feet above sea level, to Jericho, which is 1,000 feet below sea level. level. It was a 17-mile journey. And so, uh, you know, it was very, very steep, very, very dangerous. Uh, It makes Pinnacle Mountain look like a a, a little, you know, safe jaunt, right? It It was a dangerous road. And it was dangerous not because it, only because it was steep, but because robbers would hide out uh, in these caves and they would jump people, they would rob people. And that's exactly what happened to the man in the story. So he, it says that he was, he was jumped, he was beaten, and he was left naked and half dead. And so in that day and age, uh, clothes were very expensive items. Uh, if you rob somebody, you for sure would take their clothing. And so this man was robbed, he was naked, he was beaten to within an inch of his life. And so there he is laying in the ditch, right? There is nothing for this man to do except for wait and die. Um, he is, he's stuck, he's hopeless, he's helpless, lying there in the road to Jericho. But then it says, as chance would have it, as luck would have it, uh, it says a priest and a Levite came walking by. Now, if you were this man lying in the ditch, there is nobody that you would, else that you would rather see besides the priest and the Levite. They were your people. These are my people. Oh, my, the Jews, my people are coming by. Of course they're gonna help me. And not only were they his people, these were, these were people that if, if anybody was gonna walk by, they were the ones to walk by who were actually gonna offer this man help. A priest was somebody who worked in the temple. He was a religious professional. Uh, The priest offered sacrifices and gave alms to the poor. And a Levite was an expert in the Torah, uh, an expert in the law. And what that meant was that he would have known that Old Testament scripture that says if your neighbor's donkey falls into a ditch, you help him pull the donkey out. And if you're supposed to help pull a donkey out of a ditch, what about a man? You know, a human being lying in the ditch. Of course, one of these guys is gonna help. Yes, here they are. But what happens? It says that they each came by, they saw, and they moved to the other side, right? So they saw the man lying dead, and instead of helping him, it says they went as far away from him as they possibly could, and they kept on going. Now you're thinking, how could somebody do that? I mean, what, how could you justify that? How could you justify just doing nothing in the face of this poor man's suffering? Well, you know, if you put yourself in their shoes, you know, you could think of all sorts of justification, 
you know, first, uh, these people, this was a dangerous road, right? The road to Jericho, there's robbers everywhere. They're probably still close by. And maybe they're thinking, if we get off our, our horse, we put our own lives in jeopardy, and we might be robbed, and we might be killed, and we've got a family at home and children, we've got to be smart, we've got to be safe, right? And so maybe they were able to justify it by saying, look, we've, this is just too dangerous to do. They kept on going. Or, remember, this is a priest and a Levite. These are religious professionals. And so uh, they would have been very concerned about purity, ceremonial, uh, ceremonial, emotional ceremony, ceremonial uh, cleanness. Uh, they would have been concerned about being defiled. And one of the ways to be defiled if you were a Jew was to touch a dead body. And so here's a man who's almost dead, and maybe they're thinking, oh no, if we stop and we touch him, then we're going to be defiled, and then we can't serve in the temple, and then our, our, our duty for the day is ruined, and so maybe that's the way they justified it. Or maybe they just thought, this guy deserves it. You know, in that day and age, if you suffered, if you were somebody who was suffering, many, many people, even religious people, would believe that you deserved what you got. Right, if you know, you're, you're, you're suffering and maybe you did something wrong and so God is cursing you. I'm up here on the horse and I'm not suffering, so I must have done something right. You deserve it. You know, I don't know what you did, but, but you know, I'm not gonna get, I'm not gonna put myself in danger. You deserve what you're getting. So whatever it was, they were able to justify doing nothing. Even though this guy was part of their people, he was in their group. It says they still passed by on the other side. But then it says that a Samaritan came by in verse 33. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. And he went to him, and he bound up his wounds, pouring oil and wine, and then he set him on his own animal and brought him to the inn and took care of him. And so the third guy that comes by is a Samaritan. And here's what you need to know. A Samaritan in that day was the enemy of the Jew. Uh, this man had every justification to pass by. He had every justification maybe to spit on him, maybe trample over him a few times, right? A Samaritan was the enemy of the Jew, right? He was unclean. He had, un- he had offensive beliefs. He was ethnically unclean on the outside, and it went both ways. So the Samaritans hated Jews. They-, they viewed each other's religions as blasphemous, Right? And so there is no, there is no uh, reason to expect the Samaritan to stop, but he does. He stops, he sees him, he has compassion on the man, and then he helps him. And he helps him in the most amazing way. This is, this is self-sacrificial, extravagant, uh, uh, holistic care that he gives the man. And so he goes to the ditch and he picks him up. And then he puts him on his own horse, which means that the Samaritan uh, was walking, risking his own life. You know, the, the, the robbers were probably nearby. He didn't care. He was going to help this man. And then it says that he put oil and wine on him. And when we think of oil and wine, we think of salad, right? Salad dressing. But he's not trying to make him into a salad. He's, this, is a, he's, this is medicinal back then. And so he's bandaging his wounds and, wounds and he's, he's putting oil and wine on, on, on him and then he takes him to Jericho. And for a Samaritan to go into Jericho would have been another risk because, of course, he was hated among the Jewish people. He goes right in there. He, he pays for his room at, in an inn and he stays there overnight, overnight and he says, whatever he needs, whatever, he, whatever you need to take care of him, I'm going to repay you. Whatever he wants, I've got it. 
It's the Samaritan that stops. It's the Samaritan that takes care of him. And so Jesus ends the story by saying, who is the neighbor to the man stuck in a ditch? And the man can't even bear to say the word Samaritan. He says, the one who showed mercy. So what does it mean to be a neighbor? Remember, this is the most explosive concept. This is how to be a faithful presence. This is a way to change the world and make an impact, to be a neighbor. And what does that mean? It means to show extravagant care, self-sacrificial love to someone who is even an enemy. It means to love not just your people, right? I love my people. I'm willing to put myself out for my people, Being a neighbor goes far beyond that. It means to put yourself out, to pour yourself out for somebody who's on the outside of your circle, maybe someone who's even a personal or cultural or political enemy. Be a neighbor. Now, this is something that is super hard to do because it's natural. It's so natural for us to love our own and to turn our backs on people that we just don't like. Right, to, to, to love people that love us, to, to be with people that, that are like us, but to love somebody outside or maybe someone who's even hurt us, there's something different. There's something unique. There's something unnatural. There's something that takes the power of God. I was driving back from Little Rock a couple weeks ago, and I was driving on the 67, and I tend to drive a little bit too fast, uh, just a little bit too fast, and... and uh, you know, Anita's always saying, Brent, you're a pastor. If somebody sees you, you, you need to slow down. And so I try, but, you know, I end up driving too fast. Going down 67, and there's only, there's, there's one thing that just bothers me more than anything else when I, when I drive. It's when someone drives faster than me. And so here, I, it's because, you know, here I am going down the road. I feel like I'm already going fast, right? And then someone comes up behind you and starts tailgating you and flashing their lights, you know, and this guy came up behind me and started flashing his lights at me and thinking, you know, you're going too slow. Come on, I want to get by. And so what did I do, the good pastor that I am? I put my brakes on. I slowed, I got even slower. And then Anita looked at me and so, so then I said, okay, and I pulled over to the right lane and this guy just zoomed past me. And I thought to myself, what is wrong with that guy? And I looked at him with disdain as he drove, as he drove by. And then 10 minutes later, I see him on the side of the road pulled over by a cop. And as I drove by, I thought, yes. Get him. Get him, policeman. Yes. You know, part of that's righteous indignation, maybe. But I just was a little too glad at his misfortune. Right? We love people that love us. We are, we're able to care about people that are like us. But what about our enemies? What about the people that, that you just don't like? The mark of a Christian, Jesus' most radical idea is that you not only tolerate people like that, you actually pour yourself out in love and care for people like that. Loving the Samaritan, loving enemy love, this is, this is what Jesus is talking about here. And again, this is not natural because what's natural for us is tribalism, Right? What's natural for us is to stick with our own people and hate people on the outside. You know, there's a, this is a little joke that I, I want to tell you, and Anita told me not to tell it, <laughs> but I, I, wa- I just want to. It's so good. Uh, one, it goes like this. Once, a guy, one, once I saw a guy on a bridge about to jump, and I said, don't do it. And he said, nobody loves me. 
And I said, God loves you. Do you believe in God? And he said, yes. And I said, are you a Christian or a Jew? And he said, a Christian. And I said, me too. Protestant or Catholic? He said, Protestant. And I said, me too. What franchise? He said, Baptist. I said, me too. Northern Baptist or Southern Baptist? He said, Northern Baptist. I said, me too. Northern Conservative Baptist or Northern Liberal Baptist? He said, Northern Conservative Baptist. I said, me too. Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes region or Northern Conservative Baptist Eastern region? He said, Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes region. I said, me too. Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes Region Council of 1879 or Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes Region Council of 1912? He said, Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes Region Council of 1912. And I said, die, heretic. And I pushed him over. Should I have told that? (laughs) It is natural for us to be tribal, to love our own, to like our own. And everybody else, die, heretic. Here's what Jesus says. Here's what's gonna change the world. Here's the most radical idea that Jesus came out, uh, you know, telling people about. He says, listen, he says, you, know, you gotta love your enemy. And this is how you do it. It's, it's not just tolerance. It's, it's pouring yourself out. It's self-sacrificial. It's extravagant. It's going the extra mile, not just for people like you, but your enemy. This is what's unique. This is what's powerful because Jesus said it like this. This is, this is in the Gospel of Luke. He says, if you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to, even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High God, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Love your enemies. Why? Because this is what God is like. God loves his enemies. It's called common grace. The rain falls on the just and the unjust. God's love is indiscriminate. God loves not only his own, but his enemies. And he says, if you're going to be sons of your Father in heaven, you will be a person who does the same. Anne Lamott famously said, you can safely assume that you've created God in your own image when it turns out that God hates all the same people you do. But here's here's what makes Christians unique. Here's what's powerful in the world is when we love the outsider, when we love our enemies, when we go the second mile for people that we would normally disdain. So what would it look like in your own life? You know, who are the Samaritans in your life? Who are the people that maybe have hurt you and wounded you? Who who, who are the people that, you know, you look at their beliefs and they're just offensive to you? Who are the people that are not your people? Who are the the people, those are not my people out there. Oh no, that's not, they're they're not with me, oh no. Who are those people and what might it look like to love them? This is what Jesus is getting at. So let me end by giving some application here. How can we do this? <laughs> How can we be people that, that are neighbors, right? This is a powerful idea of, of being somebody's neighbor. I want to give you three things. 
Some of you were waiting for the three points. Well, here they are. Very end, real quick. The first thing you can do is see your enemy as a person. See your enemy not just as a project or a label, but as a person. When, when, you, when you look at this story, you know, when the, when the Samaritan goes to the man in the side of the ditch, it says that he saw him. And he saw him not just as a Jew or as an outsider, he saw him as a human. And he thought to himself, not what's going to happen to me if I help, but, but what's going to happen to him if I don't help? What's going to happen to him if I pass on by? He saw this man, this, this Jew, as a human being. And we take a step in the direction of neighboring when we start seeing people, even enemy people, even other people as human beings made in God's image, infinitely precious. He saw him. Second of all, you need to see your enemy with empathy. And so when the Samaritan comes up to the Jew, it says he saw him, and then it says what? He had compassion on the man. And the word compassion essentially means empathy. It means that he was able to put himself in the other man's place. He was able to ask, what would it be like to be him? What would it be like to be this man? What what, what, what if it were me? What if I was there? And he was able to have empathy. His heart went out to the man. You know, one of the most common uh, words to describe the way Jesus felt about people was this word, compassion. It's the Greek word, splagizomai. There's gonna be a test on that afterwards. But it's the way that Jesus viewed people with compassion. He was able to get into their shoes and ask the question, what would it be like to be them? You know, what, 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 what could I do that they would need, that they would want, that would make them feel valued? So he saw him as a person and he saw him with empathy and compassion. He saw past the label and past the enemy and said, what does this guy need? How can I help him? And then finally, uh, you need to see yourself in the ditch. You know, if you're gonna be somebody who neighbors, you gotta see yourself in the ditch. What do we mean by that? Well, when Jesus tells a story, often you identify with one of the characters, don't you? This is true with every story. You know, you kind of, Put yourself in the place of one of the, one of the characters. Now notice what Jesus does in the story. He doesn't put the religious guy who's asking the question in the place of the man on the steed. Right, you know, riding, you know, galloping. This is a horse here that I'm on. You know, and he's galloping by. That was weird, wasn't it? Super weird. But he doesn't put the guy on the horse as the hero, you know, riding in to save the day, this poor, dirty Samaritan down there. No, 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 he doesn't do that. He puts the Samaritan on the horse. And maybe he's asking the, the man to see himself in the ditch. And why would he do that? It's because this is where the power is, people. This is where the power is. He's saying, listen, you, were, you are in the ditch. You were in the ditch. All of us are in the ditch. All of us are on the side of the Jericho Road. All of us are, are broken by sin. All of us are lost and helpless and unable to get ourselves out. And Jesus Christ, the great Samaritan, comes into our world, comes into the Jericho Road, and gives us extravagant, self-sacrificial love. He hangs on a cross and he gives himself for his enemies. And in the parable, he's saying, until you see yourself like this, a recipient of God's love, you will never go out and do likewise. He wants the man to ask the question, what if your only hope was to get ministry from someone 
who not only did not owe you any help, but who actually owed you just the opposite? What if your only hope was to get free grace from someone who had, the very, had every justification based on your relationship to him to trample on you? What if that was your only hope? What if your only hope was free grace? Well, it was, and God gave it to you. And when you understand that you've been neighbored by God himself, it gives you the power and the energy to go out and do the same thing for others. God shows his love for us and that while we were his enemies, he died for us. And he says, here's the mark of the gospel. Here's the mark of my people is we go out to the end of the world and we do likewise. We love our enemies. We pour out ourselves for those that normally would be on the outside. And this is, this is how to be a faithful presence. Let's pray. Father, we, we, we come to you today. We thank you for this passage. Um, which gives us a radical message about loving our enemies uh, and, and not just tolerating or uh, showing benign you know, kindness, but, but just really pouring ourselves out and asking the question, what can we do uh, for people that, that we might normally despise and not like? Help us, Lord, to see the Samaritans in our own life. Help us, God, um, <coughs> as the parable says, to go and do likewise. And as we do that, I pray that we would be a force, that we would be a subtle, uh, transformative presence, a faithful presence uh, here in our community. And we pray that you'd help us to do this in Jesus' name.